into the most important part of our worship when we dig into the Word of God, deeply drinking from the well of Scripture here from heaven. Let's pray. Lord, we are always thankful for the good news of the resurrection of our Savior. But it's always good to set our hearts on that, but we especially do that on this Easter morning as the church has done for many years. And we direct our thoughts to that glorious day that the tomb was empty up from the grave. He arose again. Death could not hold Him. It could not keep Him because He is the author of life. The very One who made all of life would give His life only to take it up again that He might give it to us everlastingly. And Lord, we're thankful for that. We are amazed as we consider the glory of the Gospel. This isn't like the mythologies of the world. This is a real Gospel rooted in real history as we'll see this morning. Rooted in a real resurrection, a real Savior whose tomb cannot be found. We know Muhammad is dead and buried and rotten. We know that Buddha is dead and buried. We know the popes continue to die and be buried, but our Savior has not underwent decay. Our Savior is alive. He is resurrected. He is in heaven in bodily form. Colossians 2.9 tells us He is the fullness of deity in bodily form now, ever living at the right hand of the Father, interceding for us. And we know that the dying Savior, if He could effectually bring us to God, the living Savior can keep us there. And we're thankful for that great salvation. So Lord, as we open up Your Word and we dig into it this morning, please meet with Your people. Please accept our worship. Please give us grace to see more of Your glory that we might increase in our love for You and that our lives might be transformed, we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, Alright, if you have your Bibles, you can go ahead and turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. As some of you know, last year on Easter I, I gave you my infamous uh, circumcision sermon. I am an expositor. That's what I do. I go through the books of the Bible verse by verse, word by word, pretty relentlessly. My hero is, uh, one of my heroes is John Calvin. And after they kicked him out of his pulpit for, uh, I think, two years or so, he came back and picked up with the very verse he left off on. <coughs> That's my hero. Uh, so I'm pretty relentless in my uh, study of the word verse by verse. So last year, I spent 50 minutes on Colossians 2.11 expounding the spiritual implications of <coughs> circumcision. And uh, I thought, you know, circumcision part two would be a killer sermon, but uh, this morning I decided that I will graciously give you the Easter sermon that you long for. So that's the plan for this morning. We're going to consider the Easter message. And of course, the event that dominates our thinking at this time is that of the resurrection. We've heard that this morning, we've sung that, we've prayed that, we've talked about that. The resurrection is what dominates our thoughts at Easter. And so that, of course, will be the focus of our attention. But I don't want to consider the resurrection in such a way that excludes it from the overarching message of which the resurrection is merely one part of. And that message, of course, is the Gospel. I don't want to consider the resurrection this morning as an isolated event that stands alone, but as one event that makes up the glorious message of the good news, the Gospel of Jesus Christ. And as I thought about what passage would best assist us in that this morning, I was immediately drawn to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. So I hope you're there now. And specifically, our focus this morning is going to be on verses 1 through 8. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 1 through 8. But before I read the text, let me just quick, quickly and briefly set the context for you. 1 Corinthians 15 is a rather long chapter. We found that out as our brother read just a portion of it, and that took an awful long time, didn't it? It's a rather long chapter, 58 verses. All of them are devoted to the theme of resurrection. The theme of resurrection. The problem in Corinth is that there were some there in the church that were denying the reality of resurrection. And they weren't denying the resurrection of Christ. They believed that. They affirmed that. But they were denying the resurrection of all people in general. They were denying that we are going to be resurrected. That becomes obvious in verse 12. Verse 12, Paul says, Now if Christ is preached that He has been raised from the dead, how do some among you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? Then he adds in verse 13, But if there is no resurrection of the dead, not even Christ has been raised. 
So Paul's point is, look, do you not see where this leads you? Your denial of the resurrection, don't you see where this takes you? If there is no resurrection, then Christ has not been resurrected either. You can't deny one and accept the other. Really what happened is that some of these believers had fallen prey to the Greek philosophical dualism that was so prevalent in the first century. Uh, The idea of resurrection was preposterous to the Greeks. To the Greeks, ultimate salvation was not deliverance, was not a resurrection of the body, but deliverance from the body. The idea of a resurrection was just insane. The Greek philosophers of the day thought the Christians were idle babblers. They were just insane lunatics with their silly ideologies. And so some of these believers at Corinth, having this kind of a background, just could not shake the former ideologies of their pagan roots, and so they denied the resurrection. And Paul says there's a problem with that. Because if there is no resurrection, Christ has not been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, verse 14 adds, then our preaching is vain, your faith also is vain. He makes that point again in 16 and 17. If the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless, you are still in your sins. In other words, our faith hinges on the historicity of of the resurrection. Our faith is dependent upon the historical reliability of the resurrection of Christ. If what we're doing this morning is a hoax, if what we're doing this morning is plain pretend and make-believe, then we're to be pitied among most among all men. We are exactly what the Greek philosophers thought. We are utter fools. And so Paul then launches into this detailed defense an explanation of the resurrection throughout chapter 15. It becomes a wonderful treatise on the resurrection. But before he does that, he prefaces this treatise on the resurrection by presenting his gospel to them. He roots our resurrection in Christ's resurrection, which is one event that makes up the gospel. And that's going to be the focus of our attention this morning. We'll spend most of our time in verses 3 to 8, but for the sake of context, I'll start in verse 1. So let me read the text. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, starting in verse 1. Now I make known to you, brethren, the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received. So this is what Paul's doing. He's making known his gospel. He's going to present his gospel to the Corinthians. The gospel, he says, that I preached to you. Paul had already preached this gospel to them. He spent a year and a half laboring in Corinth. That's recorded in Acts 18. And he says, I've already preached it to you, you've already received it, in which also you stand. Verse 2, by which also you are saved. Here's the importance of the Gospel. This is the message, the only message, by which any sinner will ever escape hell and come to God. This is the singularity of the Gospel. The exclusivity of the Gospel. To get the Gospel wrong is to get everything thing wrong. To be wrong about the gospel makes every other area of your theology irrelevant because the gospel is the message by which you were saved. He goes on in verse 2 and says, if you hold fast the word which I preached to you unless you believed in vain. Verse 3, here we go. Now he's going to present his gospel. For I delivered to you as a first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures and that He was buried, and that He was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. And that He appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. After that, He appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time, most of whom remain until now, but some have fallen asleep. Then He appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, as to one untimely born, He appeared to me also. Perhaps I should start by asking a question. What is the Gospel? What is the Gospel? If someone were to ask you to explain the Gospel to them, what would you say? What comes to your mind when you hear the word Gospel? Unfortunately, I think many professing Christians have a hard time answering that question. And out of the ones who do, unfortunately, for the most part, many of them get it wrong. They answer it incorrectly. And that is a tragic reality because there is nothing more important in the entire world than getting the gospel right, than understanding 
the gospel. That's why in verse 3, Paul says, For I deliver to you as of first importance what I also received. The gospel is of first importance. It is a matter of preeminence. Why? Why is the gospel so important? Because the gospel is the message by which we are saved, as he said in verse 2, and it is the message we are called to proclaim to the world. How can someone be a Christian if he doesn't understand the gospel? He can't. How can someone faithfully, as a professing Christian, fulfill his duty in evangelism if he doesn't understand the gospel? He can't. And therefore, it is absolutely essential that we get the gospel right, that we have clarity on the gospel. We are, by the way, what we call evangelicals. From the word evangel, the word euangelion, the Greek word, means good news, the gospel. We are a people who believe the gospel. And unfortunately, even in many evangelical churches, the evangel is missing. There just isn't clarity on the gospel. So back to the question then, what is the gospel? Paul's going to answer that question for us this morning by presenting his gospel to us. In this passage, the Apostle Paul presents his gospel by highlighting four key historical events that lie at the heart of the good news. Four key events. We could summarize them with four words that kind of make a nice outline, succinct gospel outline for us. The words are death, burial, resurrection, and appearances. Death, burial, resurrection, and appearances. These are the four historical facts that constitute the gospel, and this morning we'll look at each of them one by one. So number one, number one, the first historical fact of the gospel is death. Death. Look at verse 3. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. As I said before, the Gospel is of first importance. It's a matter of preeminence. And the first matter of importance is that He died. He died. And this is a Gospel, Paul says, that I received. Paul says, I received it. He received it not from man, but from God, from Christ, from heaven. Paul didn't invent the Gospel. Paul didn't make the Gospel up. Paul didn't make his own alteration of the Gospel. Paul received this message directly from heaven. That's what he told the Galatians in Galatians chapter 1. He said there, "...the gospel which was preached by me is not according to man, for I neither received it from man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ." Paul's gospel came right from heaven. Paul experienced the risen Lord on the Damascus road in Acts chapter 9. And then even at other points of his life, the risen Lord appeared to him and supernaturally taught the gospel to him. Paul didn't even learn the gospel from the apostles. He learned it from Christ. And the matter of first importance that he now presents to us, having received it from God, having received it from Christ, he now presents to us these matters of first importance, which begins with this, that Christ died for our sins according to to the Scriptures. Christ died. That's a paradox, isn't it? Good news is that someone dies? When does that, how does that happen? How does good news begin with the death of someone? Well, the reason that it's good news is because of the significance of the death of the one who died. You know, many people have died throughout history. Uh, obviously, 10 out of 10 people die. That's the ultimate statistic, unless you're uh, two men in the Old Testament, and you're very fortunate. But for the rest of us, we're going to die. People die. Many people have even died on crosses throughout history. The Roman Empire crucified so many people that it would be hard to even put it in perspective. So what makes the death of this one poor Jewish carpenter so important? Well, Paul sums it up this way. He died for our sins. He died for our sins. This is the doctrine of penal substitutionary atonement. It's the language of substitution. It's penal because there's a penalty that must be paid. We've sinned against God. We've broken the law of God. We've gone astray. None of us are good. None of us are righteous. Our greatest works are filthy rags before God. 
We have enough evil in the greatest work we've ever done to send us to an eternity of eternities in hell. But Christ gave Himself for us. He took the penalty upon Himself and He bore our sin. And so it's penal. But it's also substitutionary because you know what a substitute is. A substitute is someone who fills in the place of another. Jesus, filled in our place, died for our sins and bore the wrath of God that we deserve. That is the good news of the Gospel. Paul Orsher puts it this way. If you're saved today, you're not saved because the Romans and Jews conspired against Jesus. You're not saved because they crowned Him with thorns. You're not even merely saved because they nailed Him to a cross. If you're saved today, it's because on that cross, God the Father poured out the fullness of His wrath and His anger that you have earned upon His own Son. That's the Gospel. God slaughtered Him. You think of the sacrificial system in the Old Testament. They would take these animals to the altar and they would cut their throat and pour out their blood. What a graphic symbol. And that's what the Father has done to the Son. We have another symbol of that with Abraham. Abraham takes his son up to the mountain and he's prepared to raise up his knife and kill his son. And right before he drives the knife into the chest of his own Son, God says, Abraham, Abraham, you haven't withheld your only son from me. And then he provided a ram, and God provided the ram to be slaughtered by Abraham. But Christ is the one, the ultimate fulfillment. God provided Christ. He is the one who fulfills that system and whom the Father slaughters for our salvation. He died for our sins. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21 puts it this way, He made Him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. That's a profound statement. That is a wonderful, succinct summary of the Gospel. God accredited our sin to Christ. He died for those sins. And then He credits His righteousness to us and we are rewarded for that righteousness. He takes the curse... We receive the blessing. That lies at the heart of the Gospel. So Christ died for our sins. But not only does He say that He died for our sins, but notice He says all of this was according to the Scriptures. Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. What Scriptures? The New Testament? Well, no. There was no New Testament really in Paul's day. There was only a few books of the New Testament written at that time. Paul and his companions and the other apostles were currently writing the New Testament. So what Scriptures is he talking about? Well, as we found out earlier this morning, he's talking about the Old Testament. The Old Testament. So where does the Old Testament predict the death of Christ? Well, the answer, in one sense, is all over the Old Testament. All throughout the Old Testament, we have constant types and prophecies concerning the Messiah's death. And it all starts... In the very first book. The very first book, the book of Genesis. And all the way back in the Garden of Eden. In Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, what theologians often call the Proto-Euangelion, the first gospel. There we read this. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head, and you shall bruise him on the hill. So there is a prediction of the Messiah's death, implicitly. The seed of the woman would come from the woman. He would crush Satan's head, but he would have his heel bruised. When did that happen? That happened at the cross. This Messiah, this champion, would deliver His people from sin. He would deliver them from death. He would deliver them from the curse, but He would do it by His own death. He delivers us from the curse by bearing the curse. That's what Paul said in Galatians 3, that Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. Christ bore the curse. And that was predicted all the way back in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. Right there in the garden, as Adam and Eve sin, as Satan tempts them, as God pronounces curses, as darkness seems to come upon the world, there's a great light in that first gospel promise. Psalm 22 provides another wonderful 
example of the Old Testament predicting the Messiah's death. It's a glorious chapter. I don't have the time to read it all to you this morning, unless you want me to preach for over an hour, but I don't think I'm getting any takers for that. But let me read a few verses from Psalm 22. The psalm opens in verse 1 with these words, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Does that sound familiar? That's the very statement uttered by our Lord on the cross, isn't it? And it was first written in Psalm 22. God, through His Word in the Old Testament, predicted that the Messiah would be forsaken by God. Why? So that you and I could be reconciled to God. He predicted that He would be abandoned by the Father to divine wrath. Abandoned under judgment. Later in that same psalm, namely verses 16 through 18, we read this For dogs have surrounded me, a band of evildoers has encompassed me. They, watch this statement, they pierced my hands and my feet. That is absolutely astonishing, isn't it? What is that? That's crucifixion. They drove, drove nails through his hands and his feet. And this was predicted by the psalmist at a time in which crucifixion was not a common form of execution. And yet the psalmist predicts with absolute precision that the Messiah would be crucified. It goes on in verse 17 and says, I can count all my bones. They look, they stare at me. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. That's exactly what happened, isn't it? We find the Roman soldiers casting lots for the garments of Christ as He's hanging on the cross in the Gospels. Fulfilled with absolute precision. That's a wonderful testimony to the inspiration of the Old Testament, isn't it? There's only one way the Old Testament could have known all of that. It's written by God. The one who not only knew history, but predetermined it, pre-planned it. So that becomes a wonderful example. So you've got Psalm 22, you've got Genesis 3.15, and I could give you many, many more. Perhaps we could spend all morning considering the Old Testament passages that predict the suffering of the Messiah. Jesus did that with His own disciples, by the way. In Luke 24, 26 and 27, Jesus told His disciples, was it not necessary for the Christ to suffer these things and to enter into His glory? The answer is yes. Why? Because the Scripture said so. Then He said in verse 27, Beginning with Moses and with all the prophets, He explained to them the things concerning Himself in all the Scriptures. He thought, I preach long. Huh? That must be a long study. Jesus shows His disciples the things concerning Himself in all the Old Testament Scriptures. One can only imagine what passages Jesus might have taken them to. Perhaps He took them to Daniel chapter 9, verse 26, which says the Messiah will be cut off and have nothing. That sounds pretty clear, doesn't it? The Messiah is cut off, He dies. Perhaps He would have taken them to Zechariah 13.7, which says, Strike the shepherd and the sheep will scatter. That was literally fulfilled when Christ was arrested and crucified. And what did His disciples do? They fled. They scattered. Exactly as it was written. Perhaps He would have pointed them to the Old Testament sacrificial system, which as I said earlier, was a graphic <coughs> illustration of the suffering of the Messiah to come on the cross as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And while all of those provide wonderful Old Testament examples of predictions of the Messiah's death, the clearest and most glorious prediction comes in Isaiah 53. And we've already read that chapter, haven't we? But let me just read a few more verses from it just to stir us up by reminder. Isaiah 53, verses 5 and 6 say this of the Messiah. He was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon Him, and by His scourging we are healed. All of us like sheep have gone astray, each of us has turned to his own way, but the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. And then verse 10 adds, But the Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief, if he would render himself as a guilt offering. God caused all our sin, all our guilt, all our iniquity, all of our lawless deeds to fall upon Christ, and the subsequent wrath of God consequently fell upon him. God crushed Him for our 
sin. Even now, you could see him there hanging upon the tree, dying not merely at the hands of Romans. Do you think he was... Paul Washer makes a good point. Jesus, we find him in the garden. What is he doing? Sweating drops of blood. Paul Washer says, now wait a minute. Throughout church history, the followers of Christ would go to crosses joyfully, singing hymns of praise as they died for their Savior. And yet we have the captain of their salvation cowarding in a garden. Why? Was he afraid of the Romans? Was he afraid of the Jews? No, he created them. Was he afraid of the cross? Well, no, it's a piece of wood from a tree that he created. What is it that he was fearful of? The wrath of God. He knew that he was going to do what? Father, let this what pass for me? This cup. What's in the cup? Read the prophets, right? The wrath of God. Drink from the wine cup of the wrath of God and stagger and die. Jesus drank that cup on the cross. He bore the wrath of God. And all of it was predicted in the Old Testament. Indeed, Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. So that's where the Gospel begins. We cannot separate Easter Sunday from Good Friday. We can't separate the resurrection from the cross. We can't separate Him coming to life again without realizing He gave His life. It was the death of Christ that made the resurrection necessary. And therefore the Gospel begins there. Easter begins there. Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. But Paul then proceeds to outline the second historical event of the Gospel message, namely, His burial. His burial. Look at verses 3 and 4. For I deliver to you as a first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that He was buried. He was buried. Although Paul doesn't say it here, he could have said, as he said of the death of Christ, that He was buried according to the Scriptures. Because the Old Testament not only predicted that He would die, but that He would be buried. In Isaiah chapter 53, to return to that glorious chapter, right after saying in verse 8 that He was cut off out of the land of the living for the transgression of My people to whom the stroke was due, He died. Verse 9 says, His grave was assigned with wicked men. He had a grave. The Messiah would be buried. That did not fit with the first century idea of Messiah. In fact, at one point, the Jews sought to take Jesus and make Him king by force. They didn't like what was going on. He wasn't living up to their plan. They didn't have a plan of a dying Savior to save them from sin. They had this idea that He was going to be a military ruler, a a political ruler who was going to deliver them from Roman oppression. They didn't realize that before Christ could ever have a kingdom, He had to die to save a people that could inhabit that kingdom. They didn't understand. But the Old Testament is crystal clear. The Messiah would suffer, the Messiah would die, and He would be buried. Right after that, it goes on and says in verse 9, His grave was assigned with wicked men. And then it says He was with a rich man in His death. He was with a rich man in His death. Again, the meticulous detail of these Old Testament prophecies are astounding. That's exactly what happened. We know that our Lord was buried in the tomb of Joseph of Arimathea, who was a rich man and a member of the Sanhedrin. Matthew chapter 27, verses 57 through 60 record that for us. Let me read it to you. You can turn there if you'd like. You don't have to. When it was evening, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, who himself also had been a disciple of Jesus. This man went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then Pilate ordered it to be given to him. And Joseph took the body and wrapped it in a clean linen cloth and laid it in his own new tomb, which he had hewn out of the rock. And he wrote a large stone against the entrance of the tomb and went away. Exactly what the Old Testament said. The Messiah would be with a rich man in his death, buried in the tomb of a rich man. And the Scriptures predicted that 700 years before Jesus was even born. 700 years before Christmas, Easter was already predicted. Now, why does this burial, why is it so significant? What makes it so important? Perhaps if you were asked to give a simple outline of essential gospel facts, perhaps you would be tempted to skip over the burial. It just seems so 
inconsequential. But Paul doesn't do that. Paul mentions it in a little four-point outline of matters of first importance. Paul includes the burial of Christ. Why? Because the burial of Christ provides proof that He really did die. It provides proof that He really did die. And so with this one statement, Paul refutes one of the many erroneous theories concerning the resurrection. There are some who, in an attempt to undermine the gospel and the historicity of the resurrection, have asserted that Jesus didn't really die on the cross. He merely fainted from all of the trauma. It's called the swoon theory. The word swoon means to faint. He just fainted on the cross because of all of the excessive trauma from the scourging and being up so long and being nailed to a cross. He just fainted. Of course, we know how foolish that is. They deny the reality of Easter, but any honest observer could never give that theory any credence because the burial of Christ proves for sure that He died. In John chapter 19, verse 30, right after Jesus cried out, it is finished, He gave up His spirit, the text says. And then after that, the Romans come around and decide they're going to break the legs of the men on the cross so to hasten their death. Because that's the way crucifixion works. You're hanging there, and the way you breathe is you step up in the nail and you push yourself up so you can breathe, only to slug yourself back down again. So if you break their legs with this big giant beam, they can no longer push themselves and remove the compression off their diaphragm, and therefore it hastens their death. They suffer suffocation within a matter of minutes. And so they did that to the first two criminals. They broke their legs. Then they get to Jesus, and what happens? Jesus is already dead. He's already dead. To make sure of it, they pierced Him through the heart with a spear, and blood and water ran out, which is a sure sign of death. Jesus really died. And then they took Him down from the tomb and gave Him to Joseph of Arimathea, and He placed Him in the tomb. Even more than that, Pilate himself sealed the tomb with two of his soldiers, who would guard the entrance with a large stone over the tomb. And you add to the fact that the Romans were professional executioners. They were experts at determining death. And they had a lot riding on it because if they were to take a man down from the cross and he wasn't really dead, they could lose their own lives. They weren't flippantly doing this. This was serious to them. In light of all of that, there's no way they were mistaken. The only reasonable explanation is that Jesus really did die. And the proof of that is that He was buried. John MacArthur sums it up in these words. He says, So the burial of Jesus is a vital part of the Gospel narrative, mainly because it serves as another reminder that the Gospel is rooted in history, not mythology, the human imagination, or allegory. The good news is not a legend subject to interpretation. It's not an elastic worldview that can be reconciled with Corinthian philosophy academic skepticism, or postmodern preferences. The sacrifice Christ rendered for sins was a real event seen by countless eyewitnesses, verified by Roman officials, and sealed by Pilate himself with the burial of our Lord's body. Burial proves without a shadow of a doubt that He really did die. Of course, that makes way for the next historical fact in this Gospel outline, and that, of course, is resurrection. Look at verse 4 again. It goes on and says, And that He was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. The good news of Easter is that He did not remain in the tomb. He didn't stay dead like all of the other religious leaders did throughout history. Before Jesus came, there were many false messiahs that came on the scene. Many men who stirred up revolt against the Roman Empire, causing the Jews to believe that, hey, maybe this is the one we've been waiting on. And then the Romans would kill those so-called messiahs, and then their followings would disperse. That didn't happen with Jesus, did it? Jesus, who rises up in the first century, still has millions and millions and millions of followers in the 21st century. How do you get that? You get it from resurrection. He rose from the dead. On the third day, exactly as He said He would. It's kind of shocking that the disciples were stunned when they saw that He was raised. He told them with absolute detail, hey, I'm going to be scourged, I'm going to be spat on, I'm going to be crucified, then I'm going to rise again on the third day, and then they're all down 
And then he rises from the dead, and they're like, well, I can't believe it. Jesus told them with absolute specificity that he would rise again on the third day. Matthew chapter 28 records this for us. Obviously, all the Gospels do, but I can't read them all to you. But I'll read one account, starting in verse 1. Now, after the Sabbath, as it began to dawn toward the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary came to look at the grave. And behold, a severe earthquake had occurred. For an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled away the stone and sat upon it. And his appearance was like lightning and his clothing as white as snow. The guards shook for fear of him. Here's Pilate's guards. Shook for fear of him and became like dead men. The angel said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you are looking for Jesus who has been crucified. He is not here, for he has risen, just as he said. Come, see the place where he was lying. Go quickly, tell his disciples that he's risen from the dead. And behold, he is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him. Behold, I have told you. Christ was resurrected. And even the guards that Pilate sat at the tomb saw the angel and became like dead men. They knew that something miraculous had occurred. Of course, we know they denied it. They lied and said that his disciples stole the body away simply to cover it up. But they knew. They knew that Jesus was raised. They knew it. They had all the evidence there. That's how we know that unbelief is never an evidence problem. People don't need more evidence. They need new hearts. Jesus was raised, and these guards knew it. And that, once again, refutes the swoon theory because this idea that Jesus fainted on the cross runs into more problems. Now, not only after having been misevaluated by the Roman authorities, not only after having miraculously survived a crucifixion, after having been beaten nearly to death, somehow he would have to find the strength to awaken from his, his, his unconscious state to move this heavy stone away in his weakness and overthrow the Roman guards and fake his resurrection. Surely anyone who have a brain knows that is an absurd theory, not worthy of our time and consideration. Jesus really was resurrected. And the resurrection is monumental for at least three reasons. It proves at least three things. First of all, the resurrection proves that Jesus really is whom He claimed to be, namely, God in human flesh. If He says He's the Messiah, if He says, before Abraham was born, I am, if He claims to be God, and He rises again from the dead, I think that settles the debate. Works for me. That's why Romans chapter 1, verse 4 says that He was declared the Son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead. The resurrection is God's public declaration to the world that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. That's why in Acts 17, Paul, preaching to the pagans, said that God commands all men everywhere to repent, and He's going to judge the world in righteousness through the man whom He's appointed, and He's given proof to all men of this by raising Him from the dead. The resurrection is the proof that Jesus is God, Lord, and Judge. But secondly, the resurrection also proves the sufficiency of His atoning work. It proves that His death on the cross was accepted by God and sufficient to pay for sin. If God had not raised Him from the dead, obviously our faith would be vain. But if God does raise Him from the dead, then He indeed accepted His work on the cross. That's why Romans 4.25 says, He was delivered over for our transgressions and raised because of our justification. How is He raised because of our justification? He's raised to verify it. He's raised to solidify it. To affirm that His atoning work was acceptable on our behalf. It was sufficient. It was enough. You don't need to add to it. You don't need to add your ceremonies, your religious works, your good deeds. Jesus said on the cross, what did He say? It is finished. To tell us that. Paid in full. You don't need to add to it. And God's resurrection of Christ proves that unequivocally. Thirdly, the resurrection of Christ also proves that there will be a resurrection for us. There will be a resurrection for us. That's good news, isn't it? We'll consider that more in a bit, but suffice it to say that Christ was raised, He had victory over death and the grave, and we share in that victory. That is the good news of Easter. It goes beyond His resurrection, and it includes the guarantee of our 
resurrection. And again, Paul adds that this was all according to the Scriptures. Again, the Old Testament. The Old Testament not only predicted the death of Christ, it not only predicted the burial of Christ, it even predicted the resurrection of Christ. It's amazing, isn't it? That all over the Old Testament we find these prophecies. Let me give you two examples. Psalm 16.10 says this, You will not abandon my soul to Sheol, nor will you allow your Holy One to undergo decay. How does that point to the Messiah? Well, in Acts chapter 2, Peter quotes that very verse and says, look, the psalmist couldn't have been talking about himself because he's dead and buried. His tomb is with us to this day. David underwent decay. But the one whom God raised up, the greater David, David's great son, the Lord Jesus, did not undergo decay. And Psalm 16.10 predicted that long ago. Another example is from Isaiah 53 again, verse 10. After saying in verse 8 that he was cut off out of the land of the living, that is, he died, verse 10 says he will see his offspring, he will prolong his days. Cut off from the living, that's death. See his offspring, prolong his days, that's resurrection. Christ died and Christ was raised. And the good news is he will see his offspring. What a statement. I love that statement. Jesus will have the reward for which He died. This was not a mission that was possible to fail. It was a mission that was guaranteed to have success because the people whom the Father had given to the Son, He died for that people. He gives those people life and He will see the fruit for whom He died. And forever, a people redeemed by that sufficient work on the cross will worship this risen Savior throughout eternity. And we are getting the joy of doing that even now. So that, my friends, is the glory of Easter. He was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. One might expect that we could stop there. If you look at the clock, you're like, yeah, let's please do that. But Paul doesn't, so I can't. (laughs) Blame it on Paul. I don't know if you want to do that or not. But Paul goes on. He adds to this outline with one more point, one more historical fact that constitutes the Gospel message. Namely, appearances. Appearances. He says that in verses 5-8. through eight. Verse 5 adds, And that He appeared. After He was raised, He appeared. This was no cleverly, devised, uh, no cleverly devised myth. This wasn't a well-staged hoax. This wasn't a good pretending job by a bunch of guys who were good actors and who had made up a story. This isn't some made-up spiritual ethereal resurrection. This was a real, historical, bodily resurrection verified by eyewitnesses. He appeared. Verse 5 says that He appeared to Cephas. That's the Aramaic term for Peter. Then to the twelve. That would have included the original eleven apostles and perhaps Matthias, who was later added to replace Judas. Then verse 6 stunningly adds... After that, he appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time. That is amazing, isn't it? This didn't happen in secret. This didn't happen in a corner. This is unlike the many false Christian cults that start today where one guy has this supposed revelation, no one else knows about it. It's all verified only by him. This isn't like that. This is a public religion based on a real historical public resurrection. Over 500 eyewitnesses saw him at once. This isn't mass hallucination. How do 500 people at the same time see the same hallucination? Absolutely impossible. This isn't a staged event. This is a real resurrection. 500 eyewitnesses is convincing to me. I don't know about you. That would convince any any reasonable jury. Any reasonable law court would be convinced by 500 eyewitness testimony. You know, it would have been really easy to end Christianity in the first century. Really easy. All they would have had to do is take the dead body of Jesus, parade it in victory in the streets, and that would have been it. They couldn't do that because Christ really was raised. He was really resurrected. In fact, here's the amazing thing. I don't know if you've realized this, but Christianity grew a lot faster after Jesus died than it did before He died. How do you get that? How do you have a few hundred followers at the death of Christ and then just 40 some odd days later at Pentecost, 3,000 people follow after a dead Savior? 
How do you get that? How do you get Peter going from being a coward to being a bold proclaimer of the Lordship and Resurrection of Christ on Pentecost? How does he go from denying the Lord to eventually giving his life, being crucified upside down in Rome for the Lord? How does he go? How do you go from that? Absolutely impossible for this to be a myth. This is a real resurrection. Paul, speaking of these 500 eyewitnesses, adds, most of whom remain until now, but some have fallen asleep. Don't believe me? Go ask them yourself, he said. Some of them are dead, but many of them are still alive. And many of them would then go on to give their lives in martyrdom because they would not deny that they had seen the risen Lord. They would be beaten with clubs and thrown off buildings and crucified and have their heads chopped off like Paul did in Rome, die in gruesome ways, but never would deny the resurrection. (coughs) You know, there's a major difference, a huge difference between radical Islamic suicide bombers and the apostles. Let me tell you what it is. The suicide bombers die for something they think is truth. They really believe that when they blow themselves up, they're going to paradise. They believe that. The apostles, on the other hand, if they made up the resurrection, died for something they knew to be a lie. How do you get that many men doing that without ever recanting their faith? Impossible. Any honest observer of the facts would conclude, like we have on this Easter Sunday, that Jesus has been raised from the dead. It is the only logical conclusion. So we're not idiots, we're not lunatics. We're the wisest people in the world by grace because we have embraced the truth of God verified in the resurrection. But wait, there's more. Paul adds in verses 7 and 8, Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared to me as well. Paul wasn't writing second-hand testimony. Paul was a first-hand eyewitness of the resurrection. And that's amazing when you think about who Paul is. A Pharisee of Pharisees, a Hebrew of Hebrews, a violent persecutor of the church. No one in the early first century sought to wipe out the church more than the Apostle Paul. He was advancing in Judaism far beyond all his contemporaries. And then the one who once sought to destroy the faith preaches the faith he once sought to destroy. Amazing. The greatest persecutor in the early first century became the greatest missionary the church has ever seen. And he wrote, in terms of books, he wrote about half of the New Testament books. He wrote 13 of the 27 New Testament books. How do you get that? How do you explain Paul? There's only one explanation. Jesus was raised from the dead. And Paul knew it. And Paul was willing to give everything for this glorified, risen Savior. May we follow his example. He was raised. And His resurrection guarantees our resurrection. Paul goes on to say in verse 17, And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless. You are still in your sins. Then those who also have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If we have hoped in Christ in this life only, we are of all men most to be pitied. If the resurrection is a hoax, we are all foolish. We're a group of idiots if the resurrection is a hoax. If the resurrection is a hoax, all of our family members and friends and neighbors who are out there eating a good breakfast right now while you're listening to this long-winded preacher, they're right. You're out of your minds. But verse 20 gives us the good news of Easter. But now Christ has been raised from the dead. That's the good news. He has been raised. And look what comes after. The first fruits of those who are asleep. The first first fruits are just that, the first. It means there's more coming. Guess who the more is? We're the more. His His resurrection solidifies our future resurrection. So the Gospel is the good news of the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ validated by His historical appearances to over 500 eyewitnesses. And this is the message, Paul says, by which you are saved. This is the message. So how do we respond to the Easter message? We believe the Gospel of Easter. We turn from our sin. We turn to Christ by faith. 
And we seek to live the rest of our life for the One who gave His life for us. Is that you today? Are you a believer? Are you a Christian? Can you say, Christ has become everything to me? If not, friends, then today, may it be the day of salvation. Tomorrow's the devil's day. You're not guaranteed tomorrow's today. Come to Christ. Bow your knee to the risen Savior by faith and you will find resurrection life in Him. And for those of us who have, we can rejoice because His resurrection is the foundation of our resurrection. Because He lives, we live. That's the good news of Easter. Have you embraced that by faith? I hope so. Let's pray. Father, thank You for this wonderful Gospel. The world looks at us and thinks we're fools, and yet we are a people who by grace have been granted divine wisdom. The world runs around and says, hey, there's millions of genders and there's no truth, but hey, that's true. And The world is foolish. It's filled with darkness. And yet we have more wisdom than all of our teachers, all of our counselors, because we meditate on Your Word day and night. We know that Your Word has stood the test of time. It has stood up to the most intense scrutiny. The resurrection is an event that cannot be refuted. It could have easily have been in the first century, but of course it couldn't be. Because the apostles didn't make this up. Christ was raised. And now we look forward to the fact that because He was raised, we also will be raised. We heard it read earlier by our brother that our bodies, are, that, that which is perishable is going to put on imperishable. That which is moral is going to be clothed with immortality. That which is weak is going to be clothed with power. And one day we will be perfected. One day we will no longer struggle with sin anymore. One day we will no longer have the sin that so easily entangles us tripping us up as we run the race set before us. One day all of those obstacles will be removed because we will be conformed to His perfect body and we will reign with Him forever. All because He rose for us. Thank you, Lord. Amen.